Hi, my name is Pete Scazzaro. I want to welcome you today to the Emotionally Healthy Leader Podcast. So excited for today's theme, which is 10 Timeless Axioms of Emotionally Healthy Leadership. 10 Timeless Axioms of Emotionally Healthy Leadership. It's actually a part one. And these axioms or truths have stood the test of time. They've been anchors for people for years. And so for some of you, this is going to be a fantastic introduction to emotionally healthy discipleship or emotionally healthy leadership, as we call it. It's kind of a cliff note introduction to the whole biblical ecosystem, as we call it. Uh, But if you've been around a while, it's also going to be an excellent opportunity to get a broad lens and dive into the wide theology that undergirds and puts flesh on what we call emotionally healthy leadership. And so I pray that Uh, You'll memorize these little axioms, you'll ponder them, you'll let them inhabit you, you'll make space to allow these biblical truths to penetrate you. And so this podcast, I pray, will prompt you to dig more deeply into some of the major books and works so you can explore them more fully. Now, our mission at Emotionally Healthy Discipleship is to radically renew the church by addressing the crisis of shallow discipleship through training a new generation of pastors and leaders. And so we're mentoring, and we're doing this through the podcast partially, by combining a monastic slowdown spirituality with emotional health. It's those two in combination for deep transformation in your personal life, in marriages slash singleness, in your teams and in your ministries, all for the sake of the mission of Jesus in the world. And so we offer a variety of ways to get at that. So one of them is what we call the School of Emotionally Healthy Leadership. We offer it twice a year. There's a fall and spring semester. And we offer it for pastors, leaders, executive leaders, denominational movement leaders. And I actually lead it live through Zoom. It's a two-semester, eight weeks each of a spiritual formation journey. So you actually can live out and put flesh on EH discipleship, not just read about it, uh, not just preach it or listen to it in a podcast, but actually live it. And uh, so I wanna invite you, uh, if you're a pastor leader, um, to go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash leadership school to learn more about it. You actually have to apply to get into it. Now our goals, Uh, for people who are in the school, it's very limited, is that you'll slow down your life to be with Jesus and silence and stillness of scripture. You'll practice Sabbath rhythms and and delight. You'll apply genogram theology to your formation and your leadership. Uh, You'll transform the leading of your team and your ministry culture by mastering key emotionally healthy relationship skills like stop mind reading and clarify expectations and clean fighting. You'll learn to be present with yourself and your interior world uh, emotionally so you can discern God's will more clearly. Then you'll be able to mentor leaders that you're leading to begin uh, building a leadership development culture in your community. And then by God's grace, you'll redefine your scorecard for success and lead from a deeper place. So there are 28 tables. Uh, You have to apply, there's limited space. And again, it's a leadership course for emotionally healthy leadership and discipleship in your life. And so there's actually satellite tables that go on in the UK and Europe and and Australia, New Zealand, Latin America, and Spanish. Just go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash leadership school and that will provide you with a page to apply. All right, thank you. With that, let's move to the 10 timeless axioms 
of emotionally healthy leadership that have stood the test of time. Uh, let me just list the 10 and then I'll take the first five today. Here they are. Number one, it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. Second axiom, our doing for Jesus must flow out of our being with Jesus. Number three, Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Number four, we cannot give what we do not possess. Number five, God's will often comes disguised in our limits. Number six, silence is God's first language. Number seven, the body is a major, not a minor prophet. Uh, number eight, you have number number seven, you have to disrupt false peace to have true peace. Uh, number nine, you lead out of our we lead out of our marriages or singleness as living signs and wonders for Jesus. And then finally, overfunctioning is doing for others what they can and should do for themselves. We overfunction by doing for others what they can and do should do for themselves. So let's jump into number one, axiom and truth number one, that it's not possible to be spiritually mature while remaining emotionally immature. So in other words, if you're easily triggered, if we're irritable, defensive, have low emotional awareness of what's going on inside of us, we're not reflective, uh, it, and this is actually seen when we're under stress or in conflict, uh, we find ourselves angry or fearful easily, or we're unaware of sadness or fears underneath. Uh, uh, we actually, we're serving God, but actually we're very much after people's approval. Uh, these kinds of things that we're emotionally immature. Uh, in fact, I was with a, uh, we were emotionally mature, we're also spiritually mature. And this actually comes out of 1 Corinthians 13, when Paul makes that same point about you can have, uh, you know, the gifts uh, of the Holy Spirit to, uh, to prophesy and speak in the tongues of angels and move mountains and faith and give all your body to, to, to serve Christ. But if you have not love, Paul says, uh, you're nothing, you're immature, or you may not even be a Christian at all. That it's the one impeccable sign of maturity is agape, is being soft, approachable, safe, loving, kind, patient, a great listener. And again, my first 17 years as a Christian uh, did not include this element of discipleship and leadership as I went through all kinds of leadership training and seminary. Uh, in fact, I had a conversation just recently with a pastor uh, of a large church here in the United States, and he was just sharing how exhausted he was, tired, overextended, uh, living without limits, uh, and it was manifesting in actually every area of his life, but he couldn't, he couldn't, slow down. He couldn't even hear the fact of maybe God speaking to you through your exhaustion, but just emotionally, he just hadn't done any kind of work on his interior life emotionally. Uh, and it was very hard for him to hear. And I'm actually looking forward to having a follow-up conversation this week out of great concern for him. And so at Emotionally Healthy Discipleship, we actually disciple people in how to love others well. Uh, how to grow in skills, uh, to be self-aware, to be loving, to be a great listener, to speak clearly, respectfully, and honestly, uh, how, did you can, how you can discern God's more clearly from the inside out. It's actually a revolution. This, this was the revolution that launched uh, me and Jerry uh, on this journey that we call EH Discipleship because I realized I was an emotional infant leading our church, and it was very embarrassing because 
not only did our team not feel I was available, uh, that I was leading, but my own wife didn't feel like I was emotionally available because I was an emotional infant. I just had not been discipled or trained into being an emotionally mature adult. I had what I like to call today a compartmentalized spirituality. So uh, again, if you're not sure, am I an emotional infant or not? Let me encourage you uh, to go to emotionallyhealthy.org slash mature. And there's a free little inventory, takes about 15 minutes, an assessment, am I an emotional infant, child, adolescent, or adult? And there's different categories uh, that kind of help you measure that and everything from uh, embracing limits to making love the uh, priority to as maturity, breaking the power of the past, living out of weakness and vulnerability, how you do conflict, etc. It's incredibly, just this first axiom is enough to set you free. I can tell you what, it changed my whole life uh, in 1996, and it's been a phenomenal journey ever since, and one thing just leads to another. All right, axiom number two. Our doing for Jesus must flow out of our being with Jesus. Our doing for Jesus must flow out of our being with Jesus. And we see this, uh, my favorite story is the Mary Martha dynamic in Luke 10, 38 to 42, where we see uh, Jesus is visiting Mary and Martha's house and Martha uh, is serving and uh, she's distracted, she's anxious, she's upset uh, because she's doing all this serving uh, but she's too preoccupied to actually see Jesus in her effort to serve Jesus. So, so she's doing, but she's not being with Jesus. Mary, on the other hand, her sister is sitting at the feet of Jesus and she's listening. And Jesus makes it very clear that Mary is doing the better part. This is the most important thing, is to be with Jesus, to sit at his feet, to listen to him, uh, to serve him. And so when someone says, I have no time to enjoy Jesus, which is what another pastor told me this past week, I've got too much to do, uh, that is missing the heart of Scripture. In fact, Jesus himself, if you look at his life closely, he intentionally moved between doing active ministry for God, the Father, and being alone with the Father. Uh, in other words, his first, we read repeatedly in places like Luke 5, 16, that he often withdrew to lonely places where he prayed. And that's where he was able to attune himself to the Father's will, receive power for the next phase, and live out his unique God-given life. And it's no different for us. He was a praying Messiah, uh, and we are called to follow Jesus, our, our Lord, in that. And in fact, when Jesus calls the 12 disciples, he requires first that they be with him before doing active ministry for him. And in fact, the 12 disciples... Uh, in Acts chapter 6, have the same model. They're, uh, they're being before doing in Acts chapter 6. Uh, they're not going to wait on tables. They're going to make sure their priority is prayer and the word. And then we see that same theme in the theologians from the early church through the Middle Ages. Uh, they're called the doctors of the church. Uh, and most of the eight greatest pastors and leaders in the early centuries uh, were first monks who are anchored in a life of prayer before they became bishops and theologians and leaders in the church. And I'm referring to people like Athanasius, Gregory of Nazianus, Basil the Great, Jerome, John Chrysostom, Augustine, Gregory the Great, etc. So a person who practices being before doing, how do I know if I'm doing that? Is you're operating from a place of emotional and spiritual fullness. You're deeply aware of yourself, others, and God, and so your being with God is sufficient to sustain your doing for him. 
And so by that, I'm referring to a healthy balance between your being and doing. So you don't engage in more activities than your spiritual or physical or emotional reserves can actually handle. You're receiving from, you don't receive from God more than you can do for him. You're, you're balanced that off. And so you've got regular rhythms. You've got sustainable rhythms to handle the pressures, especially of leadership. So you're moving and living out of a cup that's full, not empty, because you're receiving the love of God as you're giving it out to others. And so when you begin to feel depleted, you can pivot and make a shift an adjustment in your schedule. And so when we affirm the second axiom or truth that our doing for Jesus must flow out of our being with Jesus, we're recognizing that the greatest gift and contribution we can give to those around us is our presence with God and ourselves. For this reason, we carry an unrelenting commitment to not allow our doing to exceed our being. And so therefore, I know in my case, I'm monitoring uh, on a daily basis uh, and throughout the day, my being and my doing, uh, I monitor my days, I monitor my weeks, my months, my years. Uh, I wanna be, we wanna be, and I wanna be a contemplative activist. I wanna serve Jesus uh, in the world, uh, but the revolution is I wanna be a contemplative activist that my doing for Jesus, my serving him, my interaction in the world for him is flowing out of a life of being with him that overflows. Love that. Another revolutionary axiom. All right. Truth or axiom number three. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. In other words, you have to go back to go forward. That salvation, of course, is all grace. We receive the righteousness of Jesus alone who lived and died on our behalf, and we stand before God justified or declared righteous, fully forgiven, uh, because Jesus died for all of our sins, and we stand before God in the righteousness of Jesus, his record, not our record. That's salvation. That's all grace. But discipleship, or sanctification, as it's often called in theology, uh, that is about uh, growing and maturing to become more like Jesus. It's taking up our cross and dying. Uh, it's losing our lives that we might find it. It's about following Jesus, and that takes time. In other words, we're getting here at things that are deeply rooted in our histories, especially in our family of origin. And at the, when the Bible talks about the family, uh, it's referring to the entire extended family over three to four generations, because that's the primary way we've been formed and shaped. It's the most powerful group to which we will ever belong. And so the theology, very simply, we talk about Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa's in your bone, is that, yeah, Jesus is in your heart. You receive Christ. It's You're, you're a Christian. Fantastic. Uh, but grandpa's in your bones. In other words, what lives in your bones is your history is how you've lived them in shape for, you've been living in Egypt for hundreds of years, like the, the Israelites lived for 400 years in Egypt. And that the that this Bible talks about the blessings and sins of our families uh, have impact lasting in us for three to four generations. And that when we become a Christian, we're birthed into this new family. Uh, and, and that's the gospel, that's the great news. But discipleship is putting off the sinful patterns of our family of origin and our culture and growing and learning how to be like Christ. But getting grandpa out of our bones is no small task. So I, again, I was, uh, I, I'm still getting grandpa out of my bones. That is the Christian life until I see Jesus face to face. 
And so I know for myself, even uh, after a couple of decades of being a Christian, actually 17, year, 17 years of being a Christian, I actually did my first genogram, began to look at my family of origin impact. That's when I realized how deep grandpa was in my bones. And I was still trying to prove myself and accomplish things and, and not feel like I was a loser that again came out of my family of origin. Only now I was pastoring a church. Uh, and I had an, an, I was preaching the grace of God, but in so many ways, I was a perfectionist living law. It wasn't okay to make mistakes. Just like in my family of origin, it wasn't okay to make mistakes. And so I got, I had, by the grace of God, for the discipleship, I was like, oh, you know, my pathway was driving that out of my bones. Or my family of origin, I existed to keep everybody happy. Came from a family with abuse. I was over-responsible, uh, doing for others what they can and should do for themselves. And so I just did that. I was doing that as a Christian leader. I was taking care of everybody, over-caring for people in an unhealthy way. I didn't have a theology for delight or joy in life because that didn't happen in my family growing up. And again, I believed in a theology that God created this beautiful world. But again, I lived as if that wasn't for me. I just had to work for God. The way I dealt with conflict, terrible, because I avoided conflict at all costs because I, all I saw was conflict growing up. And again, I, I was looking for validation and approval from people. Again, that was in my bones. And uh, again, in my heart was Jesus, but my discipleship had been very shallow. And, uh, and I can go on with marriage expectations, understanding of gender roles. Here's the great news. We say Jesus may be living in your heart, but grandpa's in your bone is that God wants in on every square inch of your life, all of your bones. He wants Jesus to permeate you. That's the beautiful thing uh, of the gospel. That's why he died. That's why he gave us the Holy Spirit. But we've got to be willing to embark on this journey with Jesus to let him shape us, to let him remove the grandpa of our bones and free us. That's why if we don't do this kind of level of discipleship that we call serious, deep, transformational discipleship, we end up recycling the same old problems year after year, decade after decade, and you cannot change what you're unaware of. And that's why we've got many people in our churches who are recycling the same old problems, uh, who are maybe 50 years old, but they're still doing conflict like they're 12. And the local church is so important. That's why we need churches that are doing great discipleship because in some ways we're reparenting everyone. Because why? Because Jesus may be in your heart, but grandpa is in your bones. Another revolutionary truth. Oh Lord, fantastic. And once you get a hold of this, you're like, I want to do discipleship in our church and set people free really to be a gift to the world. All right. Axiom or truth number four. We cannot give what we do not possess. We cannot give what we do not possess. I often say with this, what I do matters, but who I am matters much more. Or the state you are in is the state you give to other people. Or another way of saying it is, if you skim on your inner work, your outer work will suffer as well. In other words, you can give gifts, you can give your knowledge, you can give your experience, you can know the Bible and speak it to people, but it's your being, it's your state, it's who you are, it's what you what you possess. That's what people are really getting. That's why I always say often, as goes the leader, so goes the church. Listen, I would lead, for example, I, leading staff meetings. I remember uh, in my early years, I'd lead a staff meeting. I was anxious. I was driving. I was saying the right things. I was even quoting the right Bible verses, but my being 
was anxious. My being was striving. My being was uh, pushy. And people in the room could feel it. Even though I said, let's pray and I'm, um, so let's trust in the Lord. But you cannot give what you didn't, we don't possess. And inside of me was not this relaxed trust in the sovereign God who's got everything in the palm of his hands. Or you've seen, and I've done this, preaching angry or frustrated or thinking about how am I appearing to other people? Again, I could be, I, I can be preaching the right things, but I can't give what I don't possess. It's my being that's being transmitted through a message uh, more than the words I'm saying. Uh, and that's why I had to learn to take Sabbaths on uh, before I preached. The most I had to work on resting in Jesus and trusting. My almost important work is to trust and relax in Jesus. And again, I, I think it was pastor I spoke to this past week because he has so much work to do. And he goes, Pete, this EH discipleship and emotionally the leadership, I have to work on my interior. I don't have that kind of time as a pastor, and he's forgetting this key truth that you cannot give what you do not possess. Many years ago, actually in the year 2014, Flint, Michigan had a crisis. For 50 years, Flint had been, the city of Flint, Michigan had been, a city of about 100,000 people, had been purchasing its water from the big city of Detroit. It was a good supply of water. But then in 2014, they had financial problems and the state took it over. So the state wanted to save money. So they ended uh, their agreement with Detroit and started pulling water from a different river, actually the, the Flint River that flowed through their city. But this water was less quality and cheaper. Uh, and actually it affected all the pipes as it went into these pipes and it damaged them. Now the town supervisor had changed uh, to, to get the water from this different river because he figured, oh, we can live with it. But all the pipes were damaged. And it affected and strongly discolored the water. And it, it ended up leaching large amounts of lead from the rust into the water. And so the 100,000 people in this town began to drink water that had lead in it. And the, the officials in the town never uh, were using some of the corrosion control methods they were supposed to be using. So people started getting sick. Children, uh, the hospitals noted that there was lead in their blood. Twelve people actually died. Hundreds of people had hair loss and rashes, uh, IQ loss, learning disabilities came out. And the city denied the problem. The water smelled bad. It, it tasted bad. It looked bad. Yet everyone kept saying the water's fine. They were showering with it, cooking with it, brushing with it. But the problem was that people were not, the, the leadership of that town was not thoughtful and prudent. They made technical decisions to save money and politics. And uh, what made the whole story so bad was the incompetence of the political leaders of that time. And uh, it, the Flint city water crisis was a really hard to fix. It took years to resolve, hundreds of millions of dollars because the pipes needed to be replaced. Well, when we talk about this fourth axiom, we cannot give what we do not possess. What we're saying is it's, the, it's our being. It, it takes a lot to fix it. Now, there's a lot of work to grow into a godly, mature woman, a godly, mature man. Uh, but it's the key to actually effective impact in the world for Jesus, that we actually, we, we, we cannot give what we don't possess, that we actually, we're good, good, good trees produce good fruits. Uh, Jesus, bad trees produce bad fruit. In other words, it's our being, our interior lives, that's the most important thing. Whew, which leads us to another revolutionary truth. Uh, and the final one I want to touch on today in this part one of this podcast is 
fifth axiom is God's will often comes disguised in our limits. God's will often comes disguised in our limits. Now, what it's saying is not every opportunity before you that may look good means it's coming from God. It may actually be a seduction from the evil one to knock you off track. I mean, just think of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. They were given freedom to eat from any tree of that garden, but there was one tree right in the middle of the garden that they were not to eat from, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Uh, and uh, the father doesn't give a reason for it. It was a limit they would respect, but they did not, and they lunged for it, and uh, they crossed over that limit and got themselves in all kinds of trouble. The very seduction and temptation of the devil to Jesus in the wilderness was all about limits. He wanted Jesus to cross over the father's limits for him, which was not to turn these stones to bread, not to jump down from the temple, not to bow to Satan to save everybody right now, but to wait and respect the limits the father had placed around him. So here's the challenge. Western culture, part of Western culture, and I totally bought into this. My first 17 years as a Christian was life without limits. How do we measure success? Bigger and better. So I attended conferences and read books that peddled, if I could use Eugene Peterson's term, ecclesiastical pornography, bigger, better, faster. And our, I just joined the entire culture, which resists limits, uh, kind of like the open Western frontier in the United States, outer, go after outer space, you know, the James Webb telescope, break the speed of sound, bigger, better, faster. And then the church culture is the great commission for Jesus. Let's burn out for God with our lives and, and reach the world for God. And I like see, I was taught C.T. Studd's famous saying when I was a young Christian, some want to live within the sound of church or chapel bell, but I want to run a rescue shop within a yard of hell. And so what happens physically, spiritually, emotionally, I, along with most of the people I was working with, we were completely overextended for the great cause of Jesus. And then add that to our flesh of willfulness. I mean, I, it's been probably my number one, number one challenge as a leader is, been, is limits. And uh, so by the grace of God, uh, in 1996, as I entered this journey of emotionally healthy uh, discipleship, uh, it was I realized how unsustainable this was, exhausting, and uh, my wife, Jerry was miserable, I was miserable. And so central to emotionally healthy discipleship is that embracing God's gift of limits, which we, another nice axiom is God's will often, not always, but often comes disguised in our limits. And again, it touches on that considerable willfulness in us uh, versus open hand willingness. In other words, think of yourself a fist open to God, whatever you want, Lord, yielded, or a fist closed as you go through your day. So just ask yourself, what are, your, what are the limits God's given you of your personality and temperament? Just think of introversion or extroversion. You get more energy from being with people or you need time being alone. What are the limits of this current season of your life? Uh, whether you're with small children right now, or maybe you've got someone with special needs, maybe you've got some physical issues, you're taking care of parents, aging parents. What are the limits of being married for you? Or what are the limits of being single for you? What are the limits of your emotional and physical and intellectual capacities that God's given you? Uh, the limits of your nature of how you're built, I'm more on the artistic bent. What are the limits from your family of origin that God, you grew up in and you were raised in? What are the limits of your time? You only have one life to live. You can't do it all. You have no idea when the end is. Every decade of our lives, 
thrusts us into a different season. Our teens, years, our 20s, our 30s, our 40s, 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, 90s, you name it. Each season presents us with different types of limits. So when we, when we say God's will often comes disguised in our limits, what we're saying is we can't see it all. Only God does. And only later will we get glimpses as to why. That's why Paul was able to say in 2 Corinthians 12, he talked about, even though he was the greatest Christian that ever lived, uh, he wrote almost half the New Testament. And when Paul's position and authority was challenged in 2 Corinthians by these super apostles with all this charisma and signs and wonders, Paul goes into, in, in chapter 12, he starts talking about, hey, listen, I've been in the, I've been in the, in the third heavens. But then he goes, I'm not going to boast in that. I'm going to talk about basically my limits. And then he writes about how, how, how to keep him from become, becoming conceited, he was given a thorn in the flesh, a, a messenger of Satan to torment him, a limit. And he asked God three times to take it away. And, and the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. And so Paul says there was a thorn in me. In ancient times, that's a stake uh, in, in the ground during battle to slow people, the enemy, from progressing. And Paul says something as a thorn in my flesh. It doesn't say what it is, whether it's a speech impediment, something physical or spiritual temptation or agony of people opposing him. All we know is it was evil. It caused them pain. And he told God, I want out. And God said, no, this is to keep you from becoming conceited or proud. Imagine what Paul would have been without that limit. Who knows? Headstrong, tempered, brilliant, but unbearable to be around. So yes, God's will often comes disguised as limits. So listen, God's given you a purpose out of your unique self. There's nobody like you on the face of the earth. And may you say as John the Baptist, uh, a person can receive only what is given him from heaven. And I can receive only what's given from God for me from heaven. That's John 3, 27. So as I close out this podcast, I want to extend an invitation to you. Earlier this year, we surpassed over 10 million downloads of this podcast going out to 120 countries. And our global reach has extended far beyond anything we thought possible. Uh, and I want to invite you to join us uh, as we stand before many open doors and great demand and opportunities to join us by becoming a financial partner with us at emotionallyhealthy.org slash give and to make a contribution to support this ministry of Emotionally Healthy Discipleship as we serve more leaders around the world where this message is so critical. So again, I want to invite you to financially partner with us by going to emotionallyhealthy.org slash give. Pray about it, that we together might serve the next generation of pastors and leaders around the world. Thank you so much. And I'll see you in two weeks in part two of this podcast, 10 Timeless Axioms of Emotionally Healthy Leadership as we go through number six through 10. Thank you. Have a great day. God bless you.